My wife and my, my two kids, we moved to Dallas in 2007. And we, we got here, and it, it, some of you have maybe lived a couple of different states. Whenever you kind of transfer states, you got to transfer your, you know, your driver's license, that sort of thing. And, uh, and so it's 2007. I'm kind of acclimating to Oregon. We were in Washington. And I got pulled over on 22 uh, for, a, for a violation. And your mind is wondering, what did he do? Did he, was he speeding? Now your image of me has gone down. I get that. I got a ticket. It was, it was a lofty ticket. It was $400. And I'm like, hmm. And uh, <laughs> welcome to Oregon. Anyway, so, so uh, but I, I, it was for a violation that I not only didn't know was a law, in my defense, um, and, and uh, I think I handled myself well. So what do you do when you want to contest something? Right, you go, they usually give you a little court date, right? So I went right here to Polk County and stood in front of the judge. I, I know the judge well now. We, we, I know him as a friend. Um, but it was interesting. He doesn't remember this event at all. But uh, stood in front of the judge. The, the officer who pulled me over was right there, right there in the front. And uh, I guess, you know, that meant, you know, you had to actually go through with it. Sometimes if the, if the officer, I guess, isn't there, right, then I guess they throw it out or something. I don't even know how that works. But he was there. He pled. He said what he did. And then I said what I did. And in that moment, I basically uh, kind of had this not self-righteous moment, but I really felt like I was in the right, right? You ever been in that situation where you kind of feel accused of something or whatever, but there's this, like, internal thing that kind of rears its ugly head, maybe not ugly head, but there's a sense of justice, and I felt like it was unjust, and so I explained myself to the judge. It was the move-over law. Remember that? It passed, I think, in 2006 here or 2007. I can't remember. It's a fairly new law that, that when, when you see an officer pulling somebody over right on the, on the shoulder, you're supposed to try, if you can, to get, get over, right? If it, there's two lanes, you, know, you don't want to be in the lane right next to them, so you want to get over, right? I actually believe the law is a good idea. And that wasn't my point, but I had just taken the Oregon you know, driver's license test, so the book was fresh in my mind. In fact, I had a copy of the book with me. And I stood in front of the judge, and I said, hey, not only did I not know this was a law, but something that's going to cost people 400 bucks might be good to put it in here. And I held it up. Now, and I think they've fixed it now. It's, it's actually in the, in the driver's manual. But then, you know, and then, and of course, the judge threw it out. I said, yeah, you're right. We probably should put that in there. You know, have a nice day. And it was one of those, I felt, you know, I felt what? Justified, right? Where does this sense of justice come from in us? It's interesting how when, when we are, we feel like we're wronged, we're all up in that. We're, hey, I was wronged, and we're very vocal. But have you ever done something wrong and you didn't get caught? You know, it's weird how we have this, this internal justice clock where if we do something wrong, we want what? Mercy. But if someone else does something wrong, hey, you give them, you throw the book at them. What is that with us? There's some, some, some issues with our sense of justice. I mean, have you ever, uh, you ever, you, you ever been in a situation where you've pled your case? Maybe to a mom or a dad or someone at work. Again, there's this sense of justice. And when we talk about justice, that's a lot of what we see in the minor prophets. And we're in week three now of the series we call Majoring in the Minors. And again, we're kind of looking at arguably some of the most unread parts 
of our English Bible. And there's several reasons for that. First of all, they're kind of short. That's kind of why they call them minor prophets, not because they're not important, but they just didn't write a lot. You know, Isaiah wrote a big section there in the Bible, so we call him a major prophet. Uh, it's very technical information there. But the book of 12, as it used to be in the Hebrew Bible, was all together. It used to be all together. And so these are some, some writings from these prophets during kind of a dark time in the nation of Israel and Judah. These guys, there's a split kingdom. This is all history. But at a time when there was a lot of injustice, there was a lot of cruelty. There's a lot of, you know, playing fake with God. And so these minor prophets come at a major time to call people back and to speak very, very strongly about justice, about, about God's justice. And so today we're going to lean into the book of two, which is Nahum and Habakkuk. Say that fast, ready? Say your neighbor, Habakkuk. God bless you, right? Habakkuk. <clears throat> Those are the two we're going to be looking at today. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit today as we gather in this place on the first day of the week. Lord, may your, your word speak to us and to our hearts. And Father, would you teach us more about, about justice and love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So be finding those books. In fact, let's start with the book of Nahum. Try to find that in your Bible or device. If you need the table of contents, no shaming here. These, these, no, it's okay. If you need that table of contents, please do find the book of Nahum. That's the first one we're looking at. And that's, again, the book of two. Originally, these were just called kind of a single volume, uh, Nahum and Habakkuk. And it's about six chapters, so not a, a long uh, span here. But these used to be just considered the book of two. And it's these two prophets kind of speaking at a similar time. So before we get into there, be finding Nahum. And while you're doing that, I want to give you some pro tips to help unpack especially the minor prophets, but probably these work really well for anything that you have in the Bible. Sometimes the Old Testament can be a little tricky because there's a lot of time involved and different things are going on, obscure places in the world that we don't know, we've never been to, uh, some language difficulty there. So the Old Testament can be slightly difficult sometimes to navigate. And so here's some pro tips that have helped me. These are things that we learn in Bible college and seminary and I'll just share them with you. Uh, These are not all the pro tips, but they're helpful. First thing is this. Here's the first pro tip. Try to find out what's going on historically. Try to figure out what's going on historically. Now, I realize for some of you, you know, you open Nahum or whatever, and you're like, you're just kind of thrown into this discussion here. In fact, if you you glance through a little bit of Nahum, you saw some pretty disturbing language right away. And you're like, well, Ben, how do I find out what's going on historically? This is where I would recommend something like this. Uh, All of our preaching team has this, and... um, and this is a study Bible. This happens to be the ESV study Bible. And uh, that kind of helps you kind of clue into what's going on historically. Now, there's notes in here, and the notes aren't scripture, right? You got this, this section down here. You got the scripture up here. Then you have the notes, okay? The scripture is still the, 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 prompt, the thing that we really focus on. But sometimes these notes can kind of help us navigate it. And so this is, I like, I like a study Bible because, I mean, there's charts and stuff. There's colors. I, I like that. You know, there's a lot of words in the scripture. I, li- I like the colors. Uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty, pretty deep that way. Uh, but find out what's going on historically. 
Right? So that's the first pro tip because, again, a lot, of, a lot of time happens in the Bible. When you hold up your English Bible, we're talking about a lot of time here, some 1,500 or more years just covered in these pages with multiple authors from all, all kinds of places in the world. So what's going on historically? That's the first one. The second one is this. Um, who is the prophet and to whom is the prophet speaking to? Does that make sense? So who, who is the prophet? Is it, a, is it a farmer? Is it a priest? Is it a leader? Uh, so who is the prophet? And then who is the audience? I, I had a Bible college professor say this over and over again to me. Ben, the Bible can never say what it never said. What he meant by that is we need to read it in the context that it was originally given. That really helps us understand the meaning. So the idea is, What's going on historically? Because especially with the minor prophets, things are going sideways in, in amongst God's people. The people that were supposed to be God's people are doing a lot of bad stuff. And so you see a little bit of that as we get farther into to the book of two today. But what's going on historically? And then who is the prophet and to whom is he speaking? That's the second thing. And the third thing is this. What kind of literary genre is being used? And, and, and here's what I mean. Like, there's, there's all kinds of, of, of types of literature in the Bible. A lot of times, you know, and I, I look at the chatter. I, you know, I see what people say about the Bible, especially the Old Testament. You know, a lot of people want to take attack at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because uh, there's some hard things in there. There's some things that are truly I, I don't fully understand. And so sometimes people take shots at the Old Testament or at the Bible, and I think part of the problem is they don't recognize the critics that there are different types of literature in the Bible. For instance, Psalms reads a lot different than the parables of Jesus. Why? Those are two different types of literature. We have the parables, which tend to be like a, a story with a, a one particular point. The Psalms are like songs, like literally singing to God, you know, expressing emotion. Uh, some of the songs are sad. Songs are different than law, which that law writing, hey, you know, here's some Practices on setting up a country. There's law in the Bible. There's, there's narratives. There's poetry. Uh, all kinds of different genres. And so it's important for us to understand that. For instance, today, Nahum is very poetic. Albeit disturbing, but poetic. In a very poetic sort of way, Habakkuk is more of a dialogue with God. Back and forth. So see, two different... So, so I wouldn't read the two exactly the same way. Because this, we get this conversation. Does that make sense? Am I... Uh, <laughs> Just, just want to point that out. And that's true when you apply it to the whole of the Bible. Because there are things that are visions. There are things that are, are simply, you know, stories. Some are parables. There's narrative. All kinds of things. We need to recognize if we're going to be you know, stewards of the word, there's different types of literature in the Bible. So if you've never heard that before, that's a helpful thing. Helps you understand scripture. And getting a good study Bible will help. So those three things, right? What's going on historically? Uh, who is the prophet and to whom are they talking? And then finally, what kind of literary genre is going on here? So let's talk about the first pro tip applied to Nahum and Habakkuk. So these two, the book of two, they're both written at a time, about the same time, before the fall of this nation called Assyria. And you may have heard Assyria from history class or whatever. Assyria was a, a, a world power. It was a, an empire that... It had its reach in a lot of different places. I was in the British Museum about 15 years ago, and I actually saw firsthand some of the historical evidence for Assyria. Even 
a serious dealing with this people called the Hebrew people, literally in front of me. And they had pictorial things going on, and they would describe battles and things like that. The Assyrians, though, were a pretty rough people. In fact, the Assyrians, when their army would get close to any kind of country or nation back in the day, people freaked out because these folks, had, they were all kinds of crazy when it came to warfare. The Assyrians, and there's actual evidence of all this, they would, they would like stake people to the ground. Super weird and gross. The Assyrians were known for skinning people alive. I can't even, I, can't, I don't even want to get my mind around that. I don't really understand that. But the Assyrian people were, were, were very cruel and unjust and, and violent in many ways. And so we have this nation that God is going to judge, but it's a nation that God is going to use to judge his own people. And that sort of mysterious ways of God will trip up some people a little bit, including these two prophets that we're talking about today. So they're written before the fall of Assyria, before really the capital city is Nineveh. You've probably heard Nineveh before. If you've ever read the book of Jonah, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh, preach to them. They were very cruel and unjust. Nahum, that we're talking about here, is about 100 years after that. So clearly, if you remember the story of Jonah, the people actually in Nineveh repented and they wanted to change their ways. And that's kind of a happy ending for Nineveh. Jonah's still not happy. The book ends where he's still unhappy. It's just a very odd set of circumstances. But 100 years after Jonah, the people of Assyria had gone back to their old ways. And so God is going to speak some judgment over Assyria, even as he plans to use Assyria, it's crazy, to punish his own people for their own cruelty and violence and injustice. The ways of God are mysterious, aren't they? So this is when both of these are writing about this time, uh, you know, and again, God's people are also acting unjustly. The Assyrians are going to be judged, but so are God's people. And so that's happening. And then uh, let's apply the second rule, right? So to who, you know, who are these people? Who are these prophets? And to whom are they speaking? Uh, First of all, Nahum is really kind of unknown, Kind of an unknown, unknown prophet. Uh, this is uh, from the Bible Project, by the way. If you've never discovered the, discovered the Bible Project, I highly recommend it. It's almost like uh, kind of getting a mini Bible college education. They do a really great job. And, uh, uh, but Nahum, we don't know much about Nahum uh, other than the fact that he was from Elkosh. Elkosh is interesting because we think, and, and scholars think, that Elkosh was actually what would later be known as Galilee. And some of us who, who maybe have read some of the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we may remember that at one point, Jesus was accused of a lot of things. But at one point, one of the religious leadership said, look in the scriptures. No prophet ever comes from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus from? Born in Bethlehem, city of David. Now, it's very possible that Nahum was actually from Galilee. So in that case, that religious leader might have been off because maybe we did have a prophet from Galilee. So this is the where it's from, but that's really all we know. Not much more that we know about, about Nahum. Now with, uh, with, with Habakkuk, we know even less. Other than the fact that he was probably a musician, he might have been part of the, the priestly line, the Levite group, which were the people that were supposed to kind of handle the, the ancient worship of the temp, in the temple and everything like that. So he may have been a prophet, a musician, definitely. So we don't know a whole lot about them, but they're, again, they're writing to the people 
that are, are, are the people of God that are really acting unjustly and God's going to judge them by using this, this nation of Assyria eventually. And down the road, God is weird because what's going to happen here? Let me just kind of 30,000 foot view. So God's people uh, are acting unjustly and they're violent and God wants to judge that because that's not okay. God sees that and says that's not okay. And these prophets see it too and that's why they're talking to the people. So God is going to use Assyria, okay, again, a pagan nation, a very rough nation, to punish or discipline the northern kingdom, which we call Israel. That's going to happen around 722 B.C. That actually is a date we know. That actually happened, right? So Assyria is sitting high. They're thinking, great, we can conquer everybody. But there's another kingdom brewing. We call it the Chaldean Empire, and that will later be Babylon. So Assyria is all over there. Ah, we got these people. And they were even taunting God when they were coming to attack Israel. But God saw that too. So God's people are going to be, are you watching this? So God's people are acting unjustly. They've got two kingdoms now and they're broken up because of civil war. God's going to use Assyria, which is a bad nation really actually up here. God's going to use Assyria to come down and wipe out Israel as a judgment, right? And then... Uh, the Chaldean Empire is going to punish the southern part, which is Judah. Again, two pagan nations are going to discipline God's people. God's ways are mysterious. But these two nations are also going to find their own judgment. And what's going to happen is Babylon is going to conquer Assyria. So then Babylon becomes the new world power. But we know that doesn't last very long. Because a few centuries later, we have the Roman Empire. Kingdoms and nations. God sees all of this. He is not blind to injustice. We're going to read that here in just a minute. He sees. And justice still matters. So this is what's going on. And then finally, here's the last thing, right? Last pro tip. Nahum is very poetic. Which is weird. I don't know why he chose poetry to basically do a country slam against his against Assyria and Nineveh. He's using like, you know, I think of poetry, you're like me, right? Roses are red. Violets, this is the poetry that I know, maybe a haiku. But the, the, the prophet Nahum uses poetry basically to do a nation slam against Nineveh and Assyria for all their injustice and cruelty. That's the genre that Nahum uses. Now, Habakkuk uses a conversation. You know, Habakkuk has this moment with God, like, okay, God, there's all kinds of injustice going on right now. It's pretty bad. What do you think we ought to do about that? God, what are you going to do about that? And God's like, no problem. I got a plan. I'm going to use this bad nation to discipline my people. And Habakkuk's like, don't love that plan. Is there another plan that we could talk through? And so they have this kind of this dialogue with God. So, again, two very different types of, of, of literature, right? You see the difference there. Very different types of literature, but still the same message. Let's talk about Nahum first. So if you found uh, Nahum, hopefully I've given you enough time and all that background. You found Nahum. I'm going to flip over here. Listen to how this starts. Because on a first read, by the way, has anybody read these two books? Anybody? I'm not shaming you. I'm just asking be good to read these this week. You know, there are only six chapters here between the two. Just helpful to see. Some of the imagery is a little, is a little difficult. Listen how Nahum gets started here. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And my Bible has a little heading, God's wrath against Nineveh. Very, very 
uplifting message. You're welcome. Uh, we got that today. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Wow, what, a, what an uplifting, you know, you're, you're probably going to have that on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. That's, that's some, pretty, that some pretty sharp language here. And he, he'll continue in a very, you know, kind of using poetry. But basically, hey, God sees injustice. He is not going to turn a blind eye, whether it's his own people or the people of another nation. And these should be something we pay attention to. So, so Nahum goes on and we, we read uh, this disturbing imagery and, and you get the impression, and this is what I get. The first time I read it, I wrote down in my notes, you do not want to get on God's bad side, is what I wrote down. I mean, because, yeah, it's, the, the imagery is very powerful. And, and, and what I love about what we just read, and this, is, this has always been something deep down. Remember, we started this whole thing today talking about our sense of justice, and we know it's there. When we see people who are marginalized, we see people who are abused, we see injustice, it bothers us, doesn't it? There's something in us that's like, that's not right. We know that justice needs to happen. And I am convinced that human justice sometimes just doesn't cut it. I was talking to somebody between services and we were talking about, uh, you know, post-World War II, there were a lot of trials for former Nazi soldiers. And I was appalled when I learned how few convictions they got. Last month, there was a Nazi soldier, 94 years old, living in Minnesota. Lived a nice life. Nobody knew. But he was in charge of a death camp. We're still finding folks. I believe that God's justice is so needed. I don't want to see people hurt. But here's the deal. I believe that there's a place, a healthy place for God's divine judgment. We talk a lot about God's mercy, and that's true. We talk about God's love, his grace. That's all true, but it's also true that he does not turn a blind eye to injustice, and we have to reconcile both of those things. Those are both true about who God is, and we need both of those to be true. Do you see that? We need both of those to be true, his justice and his mercy. You know, we know as followers of Christ that the cross represents all that I just said, it's the tragedy of sin and the destruction that it does. But it's also God's great mercy because he took the punishment that we deserve. Both are true. Do you see what I'm saying? Both are true. The judgment and the honor of God, but also his mercy. Those are both true. And we need to reconcile that. And the prophets are helping us try to reconcile that. All right, so let's talk about Habakkuk. Hard to say, Habakkuk. Now, this is this conversation, right? Conversation between, how many have had a conversation with God recently? Anybody? I have them a lot. That's kind of a big part of my prayer time, you know? And sometimes, yes, I go on rabbit trails with God, too. You thought it was just when I preached, but it's also true with God. I'll say, oh, that's interesting. We'll have this conversation, this dialogue with God. You know what? He's okay with that. God is okay with having a conversation. In fact, he probably enjoys that a lot. In fact, I think sometimes a big part of our prayer ought to be shutting this and listening to the Lord. Oh, 
we could do that every once in a while. That would be, be really awesome. <laughs> We're always coming to God with an agenda, aren't we? Sometimes he just wants to have us kind of crawl up on his lap and just have a conversation. And I, I, I appreciate that. Habakkuk reminds us that a conversation with God is okay. Even when you don't agree with God, and you may not uh, approve of his methods. So we have this conversation. Habakkuk kicks, kicks it off here. If you've, if you've got Habakkuk pulled up, let's take a look at that one now. Uh, Habakkuk here. Uh, listen to how this starts. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Man, have you ever said that? Have you ever felt, man, I prayed about this, but I'm not getting anything. Anybody ever felt that way? Yeah, it's okay. We can, we're a support group here. We pray for something, and, and, and we, know, we know in our heads that God's in control. We, we know that, but our hearts and how we feel sometimes don't, don't acknowledge that. Like, God, why? I've been praying about this for years. You ever prayed for something for years? God, what's going on? You know, maybe it's a struggle that you have, an addiction you have. You're like, God, I, 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 keep, I keep returning to this like a dog returns to his vomit or something. God, help me. We have these moments with God and we, we, we cry out. And I'm so thankful that Habakkuk gives us some language for that. That he gives voice to this concern that we all have. Whether you're young or old in this room, we will have these moments. Maybe you haven't yet, but you're going to have these moments where you're just crying out to God and saying, what is going on? How long, Lord? Would you step in? Listen, let's, let's go a little bit more. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly, why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Those are some weighty words, aren't they? And, and maybe sometimes you, you prayed like that. And what's going on? Things are going nuts. Things are chaos. God, what's going on? What are you, what are you doing? Now, if you noticed, God answers. Let me just read a little bit of that. Right? So he's just poured out his heart to God. He's seeing his own people being unjust and hurting others and taking money from... He's seeing his own people like this, acting just like all the nations around them, and yet they were supposed to be God's people. And he just doesn't get it. God, what are, what, how, come, how come the law is like paralyzing? God says in verse 8, or verse, uh, verse 5 here, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would never believe if told. In other words, God's ways are not our ways. And there's some mystery to how God works. And even if he were to lay it out for us, we may not understand it or even believe it. God's ways are not ours. And so right there, his answer to Habakkuk you know, acknowledging his pain, acknowledging his frustration. God said, look, I'm seeing what's going on and I am still, I've still got a plan. And even if I try to tell you, you wouldn't probably believe it because it'd be too crazy. Well, if he did lay it out, we know from history, again, 
God's people were not doing what they're supposed to do. Even warning after warning. Good thing we're not like that. But warning after warning. Yeah, I know. Warning after warning. And then he's going to use pagan nations to discipline his own people. And then those pagan nations are going to get their just reward. They are also going to be punished. In fact, the end of Assyria is not pretty. I think like, like the kids of the king kill him. I mean, horrible deal. I mean, it, that, that turned ugly. Babylon's end was not pretty either. God does his work and his justice is always right and good, even though we don't always understand it. And look, right here, God says, look, if I told you, you still, you probably have a tough time believing what I'm trying to do. And so God's ways are mysterious. And we know, like I said, God uses Assyria to punish the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. God uses Babylon about 586 B.C. We know these as exact dates, really, because they took good records. The Babylonians came and wiped out the whole southern kingdom in 586. And then you got Assyria saying, we're, we're all that. We're really awesome. Babylon saying, we're all that. In fact, Babylon, the, the king wanted to be known as a god. This was going on in these nations, but God had a plan for them too. In 539, the Babylonians wiped out Assyria. And then the Babylonians are probably thinking, hey, we're great. Their end was just, just, just as bad. The Babylonians were also decimated. So God's ways are, are mysterious and we don't understand them. Let me ask you a question as we kind of wrap this up. How do you feel about God's justice? That's kind of a big... Well, thanks, Ben. That was really light. I mean, God's justice is... It, just, I mean, if you think about the idea, it can be unsettling. You know, the God who made the universe, spun galaxies into existence, has his eye on you and I. And God's justice can feel like a, like a big deal. It, it ought to. The justice of God it seems, seems uh, daunting. Let me ask you another question. Do you think God's justice is better than human justice? I think so. I just consider the, the stuff that's happened in history over to genocides and, and mass just things that have happened in human history. I have to believe for my faith to be strong. I have to believe that God's justice will reign. You know what I mean? God's justice has to reign. And here's the deal. If you've ever felt like God is maybe disciplining you, like there's some of us you know, right now that God may be working on, and like, he may be stirring stuff in your heart, and you're like, I don't want to deal with that. God may be doing that to you. Do you know that when God disciplines you and I as followers of Jesus, that's a little bit of a hint of how much he loves us? Because he wants us, yes, he loves us as we are. We talk about that a lot. Yes, he loves us in our mess and has forgiven us. But he's got something for us. He wants us to be moving forward in, and enjoying more of his holiness. And so sometimes he will have to discipline us. He might have to kind of rearrange some stuff. He might have to have, to have us drop some stuff. He may have to move us out of our location. You know, God did that in, in many times in the scriptures. He may need to pull you out of somewhere so he can get you where, where you need to be. He wants us to participate in this holiness. So here's what we can, we can trust. Hebrews 12 says that, right? Hebrews 12 says those God disciplines, he loves because he disciplines his children. God's justice is something that we can trust. Even if we don't understand it all the time, we can trust that he's good. 
Bottom line, God is a divine judge, and he, he has the final word, right? He has the final word. This is what the prophets have been saying. They said it to Israel. They still say it to us now all these years later. God is the ultimate judge, and justice happens on his terms, not our terms. So nations and peoples beware. God's judgment is to be respected and feared. Just as much as we love his mercy and his grace displayed for us on the cross, his judgments are real, and we need to honor that. God brings down the violent, I believe, in every age. Human history is filled with human suffering and and injustice and oppression, and God can't and won't stand it. He will mete out justice. He gets the last word, and I am very thankful for that. I'm thankful that it's in his hands. Look, can you imagine if you were the judge? We would be so biased, wouldn't we? We'd be so biased. I'm so thankful that God is the judge, and he's way more fair than we could ever possibly be. And we say this so often in, 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 in our church gatherings. Look, God is the judge, but he's also the one who justified us. Both of these are true. It may be hard to get our minds around, but the God of justice is also the God of love, of great love. He showed us his love on the cross, and he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead, offered hope. Both the the justice of the God and his mercy are both true, right? They both work together. So because of God's mysterious ways, we live by faith. We're coming back to Habakkuk real quick. Habakkuk had this wonderful statement that is quoted many times in the New Testament. Habakkuk 2.4 says, the just shall live by faith. That God's righteousness is available through faith. All the way back in that minor prophet era, these obscure prophets is this gem of truth that we as Christ followers live by. The righteous will live by faith. God's ways are mysterious. Therefore, we walk by faith. That's the only point today. God's ways are mysterious, so we live by faith. God is the king over all, even when things seem to be going sideways for us. He's still in charge. And that is hard sometimes to get our minds around, but he is still, and he's calling us to trust him, even when we don't understand. Listen to how, listen to how the whole book of Habakkuk ends. Remember, Habakkuk is this conversation with God. Listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even when things are not good, We trust God. He's in charge, and we can take comfort in that fact. We live by faith. God isn't naive to what's going on in the world. He sees, and he cares. And he reminds us that we walk by faith even when we don't understand his mysterious ways, much like the prophets had to do. Listen to this. About 100 years ago, a commentator wrote this about about the minor prophets here. He said, you know, no human power can long exist that persistently practices and encourages corruption and violence. God puts down one people and exalts another at his own pleasure, 
taking into account all of their ways. And, and he continues, the secret made known to even Habakkuk was the watchword for Christianity. The just shall live by faith, trusting God with glad anticipation to that day when we get to see the full revelation, that day of new heavens and new earth. We can trust him in the now and be anticipating the not yet. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for your mercy and grace. But we also, Lord, we trust your judgment. And Lord, we're thankful that you are the one in charge. You're the judge and the justifier. But Father, you see when there's hurt and oppression and and violence, cruelty, God, you see these things and they will be handled. And we take comfort in that fact, Father, to even today. When things go crazy, when the shelves are empty, you're still in charge. And we can trust you with confidence. So, Father, we look to you as we move through the week, as we go into our neighborhoods and homes, Father, that we would take your good news and your love to everyone around us. Because we can trust you because you're good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.